You're surprised that the world is losing its grip, that the world has grown old. Think of a man. He is born, he grows up, he becomes old. Old age has many complaints, coughing, shaking, failing eyesight, anxiety, tiredness. A man grows old and he's full of complaints. The world is old and it is full of pressing tribulations. Do not hold on to the old man, the world. Do not refuse to regain your youth in Christ who says to you, the world is passing away. The world is losing its grip. The world is short of breath. Do not fear. Your youth shall be renewed as an eagle. These are Augustine's words in a sermon that he gave um, after Rome was sacked by the Goths in, in uh, the year 410 A.D. To us, it would be like the day after Pearl Harbor or shortly after Pearl Harbor or perhaps the riots that we, some of us, some of you, not us, because I don't count in this particular one, but the riots that we ex perhaps experienced in the 60s, um, 70s, the, or maybe Muslim fundamentalists bringing down the World Trade Center in New York in the 90s, um, rioting and COVID lockdowns of 2020, we can all relate to those, uh, era-changing events, right? The ends of eras, really, the end of security in many times, or at least the sense of security. The beginnings of uncertainty that are around these events. Augustine was wrestling with the implications of his own crumbling world. And how, out of that struggle, out of his struggle with this, came the book called The City of God. Uh, Augustine proposed that mankind, in this book, he proposed that mankind consists basically of two groups of people, two cities. There's the city of man, encompassing the nations, cultures, businesses, Ideas and the trends, the politics, the moralities of the present age. Um, and taking note that however much they disagree on the surface, they are in fact united at the deepest level. They're all resisting God. In fact, they're all against God. Uh, what is our world really doing about it, or really all about it's a massive social construct, often beautiful and heroic. A lot of wonderful things happen in our world. Um, but what is it offering? It's actually offering life without God at the center. It's presenting uh, the insanity of that idea as a plausible alternative to the biblical truths. The human race is deeply united in building its own world. And we want to build it on our own terms, don't we, oftentimes? And that but that construction, that reality is actually passing away. It's being stripped away by the realities of the Bible, the realities of what God says is actually happening, what he says are true. Being stripped away by his sovereignty. So there's the second city that Augustine wrote about, another city that can never fall. It wasn't built by human hands, can't be destroyed by human hands. It's the city of God. And God is inviting us to pick up and move to leave our old lives behind and build new lives in his city, to join his story. We all need a home, a place of our own, a refuge, a community, a place where we feel that we belong, that we're loved, um, that we're accepted. We don't really like being wanderers. We long to be owners. Listen, the city of God is the only address that's never going to go away. It's the only address that will last forever. God's offer is the only offer able to bring the fulfillment of everything that we desire, just the, like the last song that we sang, to fulfill everything we desire. Well, how do we tell the difference between these two identities within human society now? Uh, both are driven by love. You could make the argument for that. So you can't really see it um, on outward levels. You can't see it in appearance or education. These things are superficial. You can't see the depth of heart. You can't see the underlying causes. And that's why Augustine probes into the human heart. He says, two cities have been formed by two loves. Listen closely to this part. The earthly by the love of self, even to the contempt of God. The heavenly by the love of God, 
even to the contempt of self. What does the Bible say? Die to yourself, right? The former, in a word, glorifies in itself. The latter glorifies in the Lord. For the one seeks glory from men, but the greater glory of the other is God, the witness of conscience. The one lifts up its head in its own glory. The other says to its God, you are my glory. You are the lifter of my head. Augustine thought his way back to the beginning and traced out the story of these two, st- two cities uh, stemming originally from Cain and Abel, two humanities traceable through history and parallel tracks defined by two loves, the city of man and the city of God. It's a good metaphor, actually, because the Bible tells us uh, that Cain built the first city, Genesis 4.17 says that. In contrast, God planted a garden, uh, but Cain, he built a city. And he was doomed to be a fugitive and a wanderer, always insecure, always worried, always anxious, always on the outside of things. He satisfied his need for belonging and significance by remaking the world his own way, by taking control on his own terms, by remaking or by constructing an alternative reality to keep the divine curse from having its full impact on him. A city is not just a collection of buildings. It's a mechanism for living living independently of God. It's a device for human self-salvation. And all God's people who live out in the country said, Amen, right? (laughs) It's a denial, actually, of human mortality. The city is man establishing his own enduring greatness. But even even great civilizations are mortal, as history bears out. Even in this, uh, God demonstrates his grace. Look where his proud, or look where this proud human invention ends up. At the end of the Bible, God's final, in God's final victory, um, it's not just a restored Eden. It's not just a return to paradise. His final victory is a holy city, the new Jerusalem, Revelation 21 and 22. God takes this very symbol of our rejection of him, our... Uh, desire to be self-made and transforms it into heaven, transforms it into paradise. This is what a redeemer does, right? Redeeming and transforming everything. So we shouldn't be surprised when Isaiah concludes his vision of the supremacy of God over the nations with two cities, which is the key to these, the chapters we're going to be in tonight, chapters 24 through 27 in Isaiah. You're welcome to turn there if you'd like. Uh, And in these chapters, Isaiah looks all the way forward to the end of all things, looking all the way to that that city of paradise, um, the last few books of Revelation. And uh, where we see particular nations fading completely into the background, and the whole earth emerges as what's represented or what's talked about as one city is plunged into final ruin. A few of the verses we'll read, all speaking about this city. I'm going I'm to bounce through several sections here real quickly. We'll read them again, so don't try to write them all down. Uh, the key word in each of these is city, okay? So the wasted city is broken down, uh, 2410. Desolation is left in the city, 2412. You have made the city a heap, the fortified city a ruin, 252. For he has humbled the inhabitants of the height, the lofty city. 26.5. For the fortified city is solitary, a habitation deserted and forsaken like the wilderness. 27.10. And so the world will end. This first chapter we're going to be in, chapter 24, is about the destruction of the earth, the complete judgment of the world at destruction. Um, the city of man, constructed at high human cost, so impressive, so talented, and yet so evil. But in Isaiah 26, the redeemed are able to say, we have a strong city. He sets up salvation as walls and bulwarks. So two cities, two destinies. There's also two songs that can be heard rising from these two cities. Chapter 26 and 27 are both songs. Um, And the city of man being represented or being talked about as a place of drunken revelry, which falls silent 
under the judgment of God. While the city of God will sing on forever about one who is strong for the weak and compassionate toward the needy. The dominant figure that's shown throughout these chapters is actually God himself, judging and saving. God is the reason why the city of man cannot endure, and he's also the reason why the city of God cannot fail. God will have the final word, both in overwhelming woe for the one and overwhelming joy in the other. That is the vision of Isaiah Verses, or chapters 24 through 27. In this, the section we're in tonight, Isaiah is concluding uh, the second major section or third major section of his book, second major section of his book. Chapters 1 through 12, they revealed God's saving purpose for Judah and Israel. And in chapters 13 through 27, he's revealing his saving purpose for the whole world. So turn now to uh, Isaiah chapter 24, where we'll start. And this is judgment of the whole world. Behold, the Lord will empty the, wor- empty the earth and make it desolate, and he will twist its surface and scatter its inhabitants. And it shall be as with the people, so with the priest, as with the slave, so with his master, as with the maid, so with her mistress, as with the buyer, so with the seller. As with the lender, so with the borrower. As with the creditor, so with the debtor. The earth shall be utterly empty and utterly plundered, for the Lord has spoken his word, this word. It's interesting, these comparisons that it makes here, um, comparing two things that we would see in contrast, typically. There are, there are two, um, two things, probably more than two, but two major things in our world that that level the playing field between uh, like lender and borrower or uh, buyer and seller, uh, maid and mistress. So these are just talking about people of different um, status, right? Different uh, in, in relationships. Two things that level those playing fields, again, maybe more than two, major tragedies is one. That could be health concerns, right? It doesn't matter how... Um, rich or how poor you are, uh, what your job is, when you're hit with a major health concern, that levels the playing field, right? I mean, something like cancer affects all of us in the same way. Uh, So major tragedies. The other part of major tragedies would be, um, for instance, earthquakes. I mean, you could be standing, having a conversation with your banker, right, and talking about this terrible loan that you have that you haven't been able to repay and, and, you know, the banker wanting to collect from you. And if there's suddenly a huge earthquake, the last thing on either one of your minds is interest rates and payments and anything else. It's survival becomes the name of the game, right? So major catastrophes, major tragedies, whether it's health, whether it's natural disasters, whatever it might be, the second actually is, is death. Death is the great equalizer of all things. Um, And we all stand before God. Well, we came into this world without anything, naked and unafraid. Maybe naked and afraid. We're all crying typically after squatted a little bit. And we all leave the world in the same way, right? We can't take anything with us. So an equal playing field that these two things uh, bring about for people. Um. Verse 4, the earth mourns and withers. The world languishes and withers. The highest people of the earth languish. So people that we hold in high esteem, they're also languishing. The earth lies defiled under its inhabitants. Because of you and me, the earth is defiled, right? Because of its inhabitants, sinful man. Um, For they have transgressed the laws, violated the statutes, broken the everlasting covenant. Therefore, a curse devours the earth, and its inhabitants suffer for their guilt. Therefore, the inhabitants of the earth are scorched, and few men are left. We read this, and we probably don't get the full weight of what he's talking about here, but, but quite likely this is, this is either the rapture or events very much like the rapture. I mean, it's talking about a terrible disruption of the way the earth is. It says he's twisting the earth, and he's... he's uh, in verse 1, it says that the earth will be empty and desolate. He's going to twist its surface and scatter its inhabitants. Um, 
I don't know if you, any of you are familiar with the idea of a polar shift happening, uh, uh, actually the South Pole and the North Pole swapping their location. There's, there's some pretty good scientific evidence that this is a possibility. I'm not well-versed in this, but um, the Earth is always wobbling a little bit, and apparently every seven years it kind of resets and slows down that wobble, and then it increases over the next seven years. And at some point, the idea and, and events like what are described here could very possibly be something like this. I mean, the, it, at some point, it may just swap, so the Earth turn over from end to end, which would be quite cataclysmic, would it not? I mean, it would cause terrible destruction, earthquakes. The last time anything even close to this happened would be what? Any ideas? The flood, actually. Yeah, it talks about... Uh, the earth from, from the, its very core being shaken and rattled. Uh, so it's talking about similar events in these verses. Um, and few men are left, which should also make, just make us think of other verses in Ezekiel, other apocalyptic... I, I forgot to mention this at the beginning. So these four chapters oftentimes are thought of the apocaly- as the apocalypse of Isaiah... Um, Isaiah is also known as the gospel of the Old Testament because there's so much good news in it. But there's also chapters like this about judgment, which are quite important. And and it's these four chapters, although they don't have as much descriptive language as like Daniel or Ezekiel or Revelation, um, but they are also very apocalyptic in nature, especially this first chapter. Uh, Verse 7. The wine mourns, the vine languishes, all the merry-hearted sigh. There's no joy left. The mirth of the tambourines is stilled. The noise of the jubilant has ceased. The mirth of the lyre is stilled. No more do they drink wine with singing. Strong drink is bitter to those who drink it. The wasted city is broken down. Every house is shut up so that no one can enter. There is an outcry in the streets for lack of wine. All joy has grown dark. The gladness of the earth is banished. Desolation is left in the city. The gates are battered into ruins. For thus it shall be in the midst of the earth among the nations, as when an olive tree is beaten, as at the gleaning when the grape harvest is done. And what we're about to see, I talked a couple weeks back, I think the last time I taught about this, this thing that happens in films where you jump from one point to another in the timeline. You guys remember that? Uh, they use it in film. Pastor Rob last week talked about how in the, in the prophecies or in the prophets, a lot of times they'll jump from one timeline to another without really explaining that they're moving uh, chronologically. And we're going to see something similar here, although it's slightly different. And think, I was trying to think of a good movie that does this, and I, I just couldn't. But if I know all of you have probably seen, um, a lot of times you're seeing, the camera is giving you the perspective from maybe from one of the actor's eyes or from their view. And you're seeing the scene that's there, and then suddenly you get this digital distortion, this, this change that happens, and they're seeing a different scene than what's right in front of them. Is that making sense? Of, I can't think of a particular scene where this happens, but and then it'll it'll slowly fade back to what it was before, and the realities that are right before you are, are back in clear view. You guys see movies like that? You know what I'm describing, at least. Okay, good. Um, that's kind of what we're seeing right here. We're seeing this fading in, and then away from. Well, we're seeing this fading into a glorious future in the next few verses here, and then back to the realities of the present. One of the things that reminds me of in the Bible. Um, is Hebrews 12, 2, where it says, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, so he's seeing, he's seeing this vision of joy that's before him, right? And because of being able to see that and to view that, he endured the cross, right? He endured horrific shame and denigration and everything else because of that picture of joy he had. Similar thing is happening here in the midst of these verses. We've got all this death and destruction. And then verse 14, they lift up their voices. They sing for joy over the majesty of the Lord. They shout from the west. Therefore, in the east, give glory to the Lord. In the coastlands of the sea, give glory to the name of the Lord, the God of Israel. From the ends of the earth, we hear songs of praise, of glory to the righteous one. 
And then it starts to shift back here. But I say, I waste away. I waste away. Woe is me. For the traitors have betrayed. With betrayal, the traitors have betrayed. And this seems to be Israel, the nation, speaking here in this section. In verse 17, it says, Terror and the pit and the snared are upon you, O inhabitant of the earth. He who flees at the sound of the terror shall fall into the pit, and he who climbs out of the pit shall be caught in the snare. For the windows of heaven are opened, and the foundations of the earth tremble. The earth is utterly broken. The earth is split apart. The earth is violently shaken. The earth staggers like a drunken man. It sways like a hut. His transgression lies heavy upon it, and it falls and will not rise again. Scratch that comment about Israel speaking here that I'm confused with another verse we'll get to here in a few minutes. Um, But again, here's that idea. It says the earth staggers like a drunken man. That wobble I was talking about earlier, if you can picture the the earth or a drunk, you've all seen a drunken person probably walking and staggering around and this is kind of the the picture of the earth wobbling, right? Um, Staggers like a a drunken man, swaying like a hut in the midst of of an earthquake. and it's going to fall and not rise again. Isaiah paints the big picture in these verses, verses 1 through 20 of chapter 24, and then he's going to move into some details throughout the rest of the passages in verse, or chapter 24, and then also in 25 through 27. Um, in these chapters, Isaiah uses the phrase, in that day, uh, or on that day, which is the title of this message, in that day, to point back to the first 20 verses uh, in chapter 24. So what's Isaiah saying there? Well, the centerpiece of this section of chapter 24 is verse 10. It says, The wasted city is broken down. Every house is shut up so that none can enter. And in this, Isaiah uses an unusual expression. Um, The ESV says the wasted city. If you're looking in, uh, well... Our other English versions translate it this way. The King James uses uh, the city of confusion. The uh, revised standard version says the city of chaos, um, a city of emptiness in another translation. Um, And the city of chaos is actually the most common. Really cool tool that you can use online, BibleGateway.com. If you're looking at a single verse, you can say, show me every English translation of this verse. Great tool, uh, and it's a great free online um, Bible studying tool. <clears throat> the city of chaos is the most common one that shows up there, and the reason why is because Isaiah is actually pointing back to Genesis um, 1, verse 2, where it says, The earth was without form and void. The same word that's used there of the earth being without form is what Isaiah uses here, the without form, and he inserts it into this verse. The city without form is broken down. His point is this, that just as the creation in Genesis 1-2 was like a lump of clay that, that the potter had not yet molded and shaped, that he hadn't put his fingerprint on, that he hadn't turned into a usable vessel, just like the earth was null and void then, the city that man has created is chaotic, in chaos. It's broken. It's empty. The city is without form and it's broken down. Um, So the city of man will finally be exposed for what it really is, a social social construct without uh, transcendent meaning, without enduring purpose, like a lump of clay spinning on the wheel but never really coming to anything. The city of man is where we live when we refuse the divine order for our lives and we jury-rig our own purposes, our own values, our own definitions, our own boundaries. Uh, But the prophet, Isaiah here, he has eyes to see what so many deny, and that's the regressive power of sin, the fact that sin is turning life back into formlessness. He has eyes that foresee a day when the ever-changing shapes and trends of the city of man, no matter how attractive they might seem in the moment, Uh, No matter how shiny and blingy the objects are, however brilliantly rationalized by human scholarship, every human denial of God will finally be seen to amount to nothing. 
Nothing more than a whimsy. Just one thing after another going nowhere. If we reject God, like it talks about in 24 verse 5 there, if we think that success and happiness can come on our own terms, we're deceived. And the instability of that will catch up to us. God's patient, but he's not giving us forever to decide. Uh, Hebrews 11.25 tells us that sin is fun for a season, but the psalmist tells us of pleasures forevermore at God's right hand. Which pleasures are you living for? And which pleasures are you letting go of? The answer to those two questions a lot of times will indicate which city you're living in. The good times in the city of man will someday be replaced by an ominous silence the world over. The streets full of partying people going from house to house for more drinks like Mardi Gras will be no more. They'll be shut up. And people will be terrified as society breaks down and they'll shut each other out. So in chapter 24, verses 1 through 20, Isaiah paints his vision of a world in ultimate crisis. On that day... We will not worry about the economy. Behold, the Lord will empty the earth and make it desolate, and he will twist its surface and scatter its inhabitants. But that's not the only thing that Isaiah foresees here. Verse 21. On that day, the Lord will punish the host of heaven in heaven. Probably speaking about principalities of darkness here, fallen angels at the very least, perhaps Uh, all of the spiritual realm will come under judgment, not judgment, but, um, well, it's talking about punishment, so that's going to be towards fallen beings. Uh, And then also uh, the kings of the earth, on the earth. So earthly leaders and influence will also come under this punishment. Verse 22, they'll be gathered together as as prisoners in a pit. They will be shut up in a prison. And after many days, they will be punished. Maybe this is referring to Revelation 21, um, events around what we oftentimes call the millennial reign. Um, Perhaps not, but it it would seem to be indicating those events. Then in verse 23, then the moon will be confounded and the sun ashamed. For the Lord of hosts reigns on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, and his glory will be before his elders. In that day, the Lord will be glorified. Listen again to this last part. Then the moon will be confounded and the sun ashamed, for the Lord of hosts reigns on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, and his glory will be before his elders. You know, right now, it's possible to be a skeptic. It's like, where is God in all the craziness that's happening in the world? Um, All the absurdities of life. People see them and they, they wonder, they ask, where is God in all this? There are solid answers to that question. Christianity is not a leap of faith. It's actually the logic of faith, the logic of good faith. But we all have doubts, right? I have doubts from time to time. I'm sure you do. So when our faith lacks assurance, when uh, we get knocked off balance because of things we're struggling with in life, because of of, uh, curveballs coming out of left field we're not expecting, because of calamities that come, right? Um, those things all keep us from living boldly for God, for living, from living a bold life from God. Isaiah is telling us here that the day is coming when God will reveal his glory. He'll reveal it with such brilliance that the sun and the moon, they'll hang their heads in shame because his glory will outshine the sun. It'll be brighter than the sun and the moon. Um, literally, the last line of that verse says, and before his elders, glory, his glory. His glory will appear before us, just like it did before the elders of Israel in Exodus, and just like it will, talks about that again in Revelation 4. Um, How could it be otherwise? After all, what is God driving at in all of history? What's all of history moving toward? It's the open display of His glory before His worshipers, His wholehearted worshipers. That's salvation. That's heaven. Think about it. What will heaven and hell have in common? Well, what they'll have in common is that everyone in heaven and everyone in hell will be honoring God. The people in heaven will be a tribute to his grace, and the people in hell will bear witness to his justice. But everyone will bring honor to God. So what then is the difference between heaven and hell? 
Well, the difference is that people in heaven will be delighting in God's glory, right? And the people in hell will be raging and shrieking hatred at God's glory. God actually lets us experience him in the way that our heart desires. What's coming out of our hearts, where our faith and our trust is, is what determines our destiny. That's why the most urgent business before us every day is not amassing pleasures for ourselves, not freedoms that we have in America, not... um, not the things of this world, not the things of earth. Um, But it's actually the glory of God and how our hearts are being satisfied, the satisfaction that we're finding and the pleasure that we're experiencing in his glory and by giving his glory. That's what this life is for. Uh, Chapter 25. And a good heading for this chapter would be the death of death. Man's greatest enemy, death, right? Chapter 25, verse 1. O Lord, you are my God. I will exalt you. I will praise your name. For you have done wonderful things, plans formed of old, faithful and sure. For you have made the city a heap, the fortified city a ruin. The foreigner's palace is a city no more. It will never be rebuilt. Therefore, strong peoples will glorify you. Cities of ruthless nations will fear you. For you have been a stronghold to the poor, a stronghold to the needy in his distress, a shelter from the storm and a shade from the heat. For the breath of the ruthless is like a storm against a wall, like heat in a dry place. You subdue the noise of the foreigners as heat by the shade of a cloud. So the song to the ruthless is put down. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, a rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Briefly, right here in the middle of verse 8. Chapter 15, verse uh, 55. Actually, we'll back up to verse 50. Start there. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain." This is all part of this feast that he's talking about here on the... uh, I mean, it's talking about a lot of things, right? But it's all pointing towards this feast. It's it's probably talking about the rapture or at the very least um, when we're all gathered up, this perusa that it talks about in in 1 Corinthians, um, being gathered up to this mountain, being gathered up into the Lord's presence um, for this wedding feast, a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine. There won't be anything that our hearts desire that won't be included in this spread. And he swallows up death forever. And it goes on and it says, and the Lord will wipe away tears from all faces, referencing Revelation 21. And the reproach of his people, sorry, I'm back in Isaiah. Um, Isaiah 25, verse 8. 
And the Lord will wipe away every tear from all faces, and the reproach of his people will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. For the hand of the Lord will rest on this mountain, and Moab shall be trampled down in his place, as straw is trampled down in a dunghill. And he will spread out his hands in the midst of it as a, as a swimmer spreads, out, spreads his hands out to swim. But the Lord will lay low his pompous pride together with the skill of his hands, and the high fortification of his walls he shall bring down. Lay low and cast to the ground, to the dust. Pretty picture there, right? Swimming in dung. Moab, in this case, is, re- is representing, again, that city of man, that uh, mankind's um, uh, ways of doing things. Um, and the Lord is going to trample all of that under his foot. In that day, the Lord is our gracious host. Back in verse 6, it said, On this mountain the Lord of hosts will make for all the peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined. God offers everyone a place at this banquet, at this banquet table, and all peoples will actually be represented. Uh, He serves nothing but the best. Nothing here is going to disappoint. It's all going to be of the finest quality. Again, fulfilling every desire that we might have. Um, but the feast will be held on this mountain, the Mount Zion of God's city. It does not belong to the city of man. God's people had to wait all their lives to sit at this table. We're waiting still to sit at this table. But the wait is worth it. This is the banquet of true salvation, and all the guests are going to be happy, and nothing can ever make them sad again. Well, how do we find our way there? It's the place I want to be, right? (laughs) Well, the gospel says that we can actually come even now through Christ Jesus. Um, Write down Hebrews 12, verses 23 to 24, and reference that later. Uh, Hebrews 12, 22 to 24. The party is open to one and all, but there's only one location. If you enter in through God's appointed way, he's going to reserve a place for you, um, whoever you are. But you must come through his appointed way, which is faith in his son, Jesus Christ. The banquet God is preparing is so rich that Isaiah seems like he's struggling here for words to describe it. Do not think of life in the city of God as as dreary. Don't think you have to sacrifice anything to gain Christ. We say goodbye to the world's drunken binge that it talks about in chapter 24, verses 7 through 9, but um, it's actually better than that. As Isaac Watts puts it in a hymn, the hill of Zion yields a thousand sacred sweets. So this banquet is going to be full of so so many things, so much better than we can possibly imagine. And even Jesus is looking forward to this banquet. The night he instituted the last, or his supper, um, we call it, we often think of it, talk about it as the last supper. He said, I won't drink of this, uh, I won't drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. That is when he will lift the gloom that now hangs over all of human, of our experience, human, human experience. Swallow up, swallowing up death forever, wiping away every tear from our eyes. And we'll be so glad, finally, to be saved by him. Uh, Chapter 26 of Isaiah, talking about perfect peace. And 26 and 27 are both songs, as it tells us right here in verse 1 for chapter 26 anyway. It says, in that day, this song will be sung in the land of Judah. So this is Israel speaking, singing, actually. We have a strong city. He sets up salvation as walls and bulwarks. Open the gates that the righteous nation that keeps faith may enter in. You keep 
him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on you, because he trusts in you. Trust in the Lord forever, for the Lord God is an everlasting rock, for he has humbled the inhabitants of the height, the lofty city. He lays it low, lays it low to the ground, casts it to the dust. The foot tramples it, the feet of the poor, the steps of the needy. The path of the righteous is level. You make level the way of the righteous in the path of your judgments. O Lord, we wait for you. Your name and remembrance are the desire of our soul. My soul yearns for you in the night. My spirit within me earnestly seeks you. For when your judgments are in the earth, the inhabitants of the world learn righteousness. If favor is shown to the wicked, he does not learn righteousness. In the land of uprightness, he deals corruptly and does not see the majesty of the Lord. O Lord, your hand is lifted up, but they do not see it. Let them see your zeal, let them see your zeal for your people and be ashamed. Let the fire for your adversaries consume them. O Lord, you will ordain peace for us, for you have indeed done for us all our works. O Lord, our God, other lords besides you have ruled over us, but your name alone we bring to remembrance. When it talks about other lords ruling over them, remember the idolatry that, that they were steeped in for so many years. Um, so this is actually a return. It's speaking about a return of them to, uh, to actually worshiping Yahweh and coming under his rule again. Verse 14 says, They are dead. They will not live. They are shades. They will not arise. To the end, you have visited them with destruction and wiped out all remembrance of them. But you have increased the nation, O Lord. You have increased the nation. You are glorified. You have enlarged all the borders of the land. O Lord, in distress they sought you. They poured out a whispered prayer when your dis discipline was upon them. Like a pregnant woman who writhes and cries out in her pangs when she is near to giving birth, so were we because of you, O Lord. We were pregnant. We writhed. But we have given birth to wind. Pause for a moment there. This, these are some challenging verses to translate, actually, and, and to interpret as well. Um, but the picture here is, if you think of, uh, in Matthew, it talks about the earth being like a pregnant woman. The idea with a pregnant woman is you can, you can tell she's pregnant, right? I mean, it's pretty obvious, especially in the later stages. It's, it's obvious because of the size of, a, of um, a belly, right? Because of the child. But even today, even with modern medicine, you don't know the exact date of birth unless you do a C-section, right? That's the only, if you make an appointment with your doctor and you go have a C-section, then you know when you're going to have your baby. Um, but otherwise, it, it's a mystery. It can come early, it can come late. Uh, and especially in their mindset when they didn't have some of, the, some of the ways to tell how far along a pregnancy was, the picture here is that obviously... Um, there's this pregnancy happening, but you don't know when it's going to culminate, right? And that's the picture at the, as we're moving toward the end times that it talks about, especially like in Matthew uh, 20, 24, right? Um, the picture here is a little different. It, it's using the same metaphor, the same terminology, and it seems that it's speaking of Israel that they were supposed to be... Um, they were supposed to be ripe with the knowledge of the Lord. They had his word, and they were supposed to represent God to the rest of the world, right? To be a blessing to the rest of the world, to share the gospel, to spread the gospel. But it says, we've given birth to the wind. So their birth was empty, essentially. It says, we've accomplished no deliverance in the earth, and the inhabitants of the world have not fallen. Um, they didn't accomplish their purposes to bring life to the world would seem to be the best uh, interpretation of these verses. Verse 19, your dead shall live. Now, these verses are some of the clearest in the Old Testament pointing to a resurrection, pointing to resurrected bodies and the fact that resurrection will happen. Verse 19, it says, your dead shall live, their bodies shall rise. You who dwell in the dust, awake and sing for joy. In other words, dead, come back to life and sing for joy because of the glories of God, because of the goodness. For your dew is a dew of light. 
and the earth will give birth to the dead. Come, my people, into your chambers and shut your doors behind you. Hide yourselves for a little while until the fury has passed by. For behold, the Lord is coming out from his place to punish the inhabitants of the earth for their iniquity, and the earth will disclose the blood shed in it and will no more cover its slain. In other words, everything's going to come to light. Everything will be exposed, all sin, all blood that's ever been shed, um, any sin that's ever been committed, all of it was, is going to come to light. The earth will no longer cover it and hide it. And in that day, the Lord is our merciful Savior. Back in verse 12, uh, Isaiah said, O Lord, you will ordain peace for us. You have done for us all our works. The center of this section is uh, verses 10, and 10, 11, and 12. In, um, verse 10, it says, If favor is shown to the wicked, he does not learn righteousness. In the land of uprightness, he deals corruptly, and he does not see the majesty of the Lord. O Lord, your hand is lifted up, but they do not see it. Let them see your zeal for your people and be ashamed. Let the fire of your adversaries consume them. O Lord, you will ordain peace for us, for you have indeed done for us all our works. Uh, in this section, Isaiah is, is um, asserting the impenetrable blindness of the human heart, how blind we are without God revealing himself to us. That's why even at our best, we owe everything to God. He says, you have done for us all our works. Uh, Ephesians 2, 1 through 10 talks about God preparing beforehand these works for us to do, these works for us to enter into. But it also talks about him giving us the faith in order to actually be able to do them. So not only does he give us our works, but he empowers us to be able to do them. So everything, he's done all our works for us. He's enabled us. He's, he's presented these works for us and then given us the, um, the ability to accomplish them so that none can boast, essentially. We can point towards Christ. We can point towards God. The Christian life is not what we give to God, but what God gives to us. And what he gives us, peace. What he gives is peace, wholeness, humanness at its authentic best forever. He ordained peace for us. Full, beautiful salvation is the settled will of God for weak and brain-damaged people like you and like me. People who don't mind being saved. Isn't that edifying to be among the brain damaged <laughs> in our fallen state, right? Is there anything in your life that you're really proud of um, precisely because you had nothing to do with it? <laughs> um, things that you know you had absolutely nothing to do with that you're proud. That's actually a, a good headspace to be in. It's an, o it's an okay thought around these things. Um, because it had nothing to do with you, right? So who, what are you going to boast in? You're going to boast in the Lord. God did this in my life. And am I proud of it and happy about it? Absolutely. Um, 1 Corinthians one thirty one says, Let the one who boasts, boasts in the Lord. There is this kind of pride that actually humbles us and it satisfies us because it's actually not about us. It's about the Lord. The pride, on the other hand, the pride of the city of man inflates ego and yet it leaves us empty. Uh, but the boast of the city of God is actually God himself because he's enough to enrich us forever. Everything good that we are, everything good that we, are, that we have is his doing and not ours. Uh, our place in the city of God is his gift of grace. He even preserves us in the mentality of, of uh, faith. He says, you keep, or it says, you keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you. When we're focused on God, he's keeping us in his perfect peace. He stimulates our hearts in this longing for him. In verse 9, it talked about, my soul yearns for you in the night. My spirit within me earnestly seeks you. Lord, when that's not true in our lives, make it so, please. It's like the man who said, 
Lord, I believe, but help me with my unbelief. Lord, I yearn, but help me with my lack of yearning. Help me in the ways that I'm distracted. Faith and longing prove that God is at work in our hearts. That yearning that He's awakening in you is the most important thing about you. It's the key to your future. So fan that flame and don't let it die. Chapter 27. In that day, the Lord with his hard and great and strong sword will punish Leviathan, the fleeing serpent, Leviathan, the twisting serpent, and he will slay the dragon that is in the sea. In that day, a pleasant vineyard, sing of it. I, the Lord, am its keeper. Every moment I water it, lest anyone punish it. I keep it night and day. I have no wrath, would that I had thorns and briars to battle. I would march against them. I would burn them up together or let them lay hold of my protection. Let them make peace with me. Let them make peace with me. Think back to uh, Isaiah chapter 5. If you remember when we went through that, it was speaking of a vineyard and how God had prepared that vineyard. He'd given it everything that it needed to thrive, right? Good soil, the choicest vines, and yet he got uh, wild grapes, right? You got rebelliousness. What we're seeing here is a complete turnaround of that picture. Um, here he's actually saying, would that there would be briars and thorns that I could battle against, but there aren't. Um, things are doing what they're supposed to be doing in this picture. Uh, so we're getting, again, we're getting a, this glimpse of, of a glorious future, the redemption of Israel, chapter 27. Verse 6, in days to come, Jacob shall take root. Israel shall blossom and put forth shoots and fill the whole world with fruit. Has he struck them as he struck those who struck them? Or have they been slain as their slayers were slain? Measure by measure, by exile, you contended with them. He removed them with his fierce breath in the day of the east wind. Therefore, by this, the guilt of Jacob will be atoned for, and this will be the full fruit of the removal of his sin." When he makes all the stones of the altars like chalk stones crushed to pieces, no ashram or incense altars will remain standing. No idolatry left, right? For the fortified city is solitary, a habitation deserted and forsaken like the wilderness. There the calf grazes. There it lies down and strips its branches. When its boughs are dry, they are broken. Women come and make a fire of them. For this is a people without discernment. Therefore, he who made them will not have compassion on them. He who formed them will show them no favor. In that day, from the river Euphrates to the brook of Egypt, the Lord will thresh out the grain, and you will be gleaned one by one, O people of Israel. And in that day, a great trumpet will be blown, and those who were lost in the land of Assyria and those who were driven out to the land of Egypt will come and worship the Lord on the holy mountain at Jerusalem. In that day... Worship the Lord alone. In that day, referencing back to verse 1, in that day the Lord with his hard and great and strong sword will punish Leviathan, the fleeing serpent, Leviathan, the twisting serpent, and he will slay the dragon that is in the sea. Leviathan here uh, symbolizes the monster of moral chaos that's raged in the world ever since the fall of Adam. It should remind us of, of the serpent, in Genesis, right? Also the dragon in Revelation. Um, it represents the evil established in the city of man. Um, but it's also showing that the evil in the city of man is actually something more than just human. It's actually demonic. Uh, and in this picture of Leviathan, Isaiah is, he's, he's borrowing mythological um, ideas from the culture in that day and age. Now, it doesn't mean that he's saying these myths are true, right? He's just using a picture that they understand. He's, he's using a, uh, a mythological creature that they understand, that they understand the, the, um, the greatness of this creature and the danger of this creature. Um, 
so he's using that to describe the evil that he sees. And he, he describes it as this coiling, wriggling, serpentine monster. He does this, again, not because he's a primitive thinker, but because nothing less can tell the truth about evil. Truth requires imagination, okay? Um, and using cultural images to describe it is perfectly normal. If I said something along the lines, now this will date some people potentially, but if I said something along the lines of, uh, of eat your spinach, it's what makes you strong, who might you think of? Yeah, Popeye. Or that's my kryptonite, what character, Superman. Yeah, easy things, right? Um, this is the idea. He's using something that, that the culture knows well to paint this picture of evil, okay? In our, our age, this is a quote from Flannery Connor. He says, uh, our age has domesticated despair or treachery um, and actually, or evil and actually learned to live with it happily. But Isaiah wants us to grasp the magnitude of God's victory over the evil that we oftentimes trivialize. How does our, cultural, how does our culture trivialize the evil? Well, here's maybe a couple of ideas. Um, it's actually by normalizing it, for one. And one of the things I was considering just in thinking through this is, is how movie theaters, right? And if you... I don't... I used to. I don't watch these kinds of movies anymore, but horror movies or scream movies, and whether you're watching them at home or watching them at the theater, what are you usually doing? Yeah, eating popcorn. Watching... These visualization, visual, visualizations of pure abstract evil happening, right? Um, and maybe, so that's, it's pretty easy to discern that usually, slasher movies, as um, fiction. But then that translates, sometimes can translate into war movies. So violent pictures that we watch of, of perhaps real events or depicting real events. And, and what are we doing? Or at least I find myself doing the same thing. Eating popcorn in the midst of this, right? Normalizing it. Um, doling my senses to the evil things that I'm seeing. Doling my senses to the, the, the wickedness being portrayed uh, of humanity against humanity, oftentimes. And then this spills over into real life. I think of a more recent movie that we went and watched, and there I was eating popcorn again. Uh, the Sound of Freedom, human trafficking, right? Devastating things happening in our time. Um, Schindler's List, right? These, these terrible pictures of humanity's vile and evilness, and we're eating popcorn and drinking our soda. The Passion of the Christ. There's hope for me because I didn't eat popcorn during The Passion of the Christ, okay? Now, I'm not throwing stones at any... Because I'm serious. I did eat popcorn through most of these movies at one point or another, other than The Passion. I don't think I did that. I might have even then, maybe the second time I watched it, but certainly not the first, I don't think. But, so I'm not throwing rocks at you if, you if you eat popcorn during these things, but consider what that is doing to our hearts and to our minds. It's dulling our senses to what we're, what we're seeing, and it's actually it's normalizing that behavior, whether it's just... Well, whatever kind of evil it might be that we're normalizing in that, right? Doing a, a normal kind of function that's pleasurable while we're seeing pictures that should turn our stomachs. Um, so listen now, the victory, of, the victory that God has won over everything is actually the greatest truth in the universe. God has not only restrained evil, He's not only made it serve His good purposes, all things work together for our good, right? But He also is going to annihilate evil at the end of time. There will come an end to that evil. He will annihilate it. His threefold hard and great and strong sword is going to hack to pieces the threefold Leviathan the fleeing serpent, the twisting serpent, the dragon that is in the sea. There's no compromise, no mercy. It will be good versus evil, as simple as that, and good wins. Hallelujah. 
evil will be destroyed fully and forever. How does this battle play out? What actually plays out at his cross, Jesus triumphed over demonic powers. Reference Corinthians 2.15. Uh, and then in Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 and 15, it tells us that's when the devil lost his power to manipulate us with fear at the cross when Jesus won. He overcame death. He became death for us. Uh, the enemy has no more claim on us, no advantage over us. We're no longer the devil's victims. Lo, his doom is sure, is how Martin Luther put it. And at Christ's at his second coming, he will obliterate all his enemies with finality. And we'll actually have a role in that. In Romans 16, 20, it says, the God of peace will soon crush under your foot, Satan, under your foot, speaking to you, speaking to me, speaking to us. That's a story I want to be part of. Uh, sign me up to be part of, of uh, crushing and uh, everything that the enemy has done to bring woe into our lives. Every woe that he's dealt us in this life, to be part of crushing that and putting an end to it, um, that will be glorious. But all of the glory will go to Christ crucified, and we'll be forever safe in his strong presence. Verse 13 said that in that day a great trumpet will be blown, and those who were lost in the land of Assyria and those who were driven out to the land of Egypt will come and worship the Lord on the holy mountain at Jerusalem. Uh, in the book of Leviticus, in the, in the year of Jubilee, it was launched by, with the blowing of a trumpet. Um, every 50 years, Jubilee would happen. It was a year-long celebration of rest and release from debt, um, any debts you owed, wiped out. Wouldn't that be awesome? Um, maybe every five years would be even better. It was, it was the Old Testament's way of, seeing, of saying, for freedom, Christ has set us free. There was this entering into rest in the, in the, in the year of Jubilee and, and this re-leveling of the playing field. Um, we need periodic renewal and refocus and release uh, because we tend to clutter and complicate our lives. But the trumpet of the gospel calls us back to God, it calls us back to freedom of worship, um, a freedom to focus on our eternal home, uh, to focus on life outside of the oppressive city of man. And in Isaiah's categories, in these verses here, that's Assyria and Egypt that he's referencing. God's lost ones will come home from those cities to worship him forever. Give the love of your heart to God, even to the contempt of yourself. Believe that he is worth that much. Earthly mindedness, to use an old Puritan word, will kill your heart toward God. Or the opposite, your heart for God will kill your earthly mindedness. But you can't have both. So stop trying to have both. Again, I mentioned this a few weeks ago, but again, I dare you to be accused of being so heavenly-minded that you're no earthly good. Uh, now, do keep in mind, you're not allowed to use that as permission to neglect your responsibilities, okay? We all have responsibilities that we have to take care of. It says those who don't take care of their families are worse than unbelievers, so there are things that we must do, but we should. It would be awesome to be accused of being so heavenly-minded that we're no earthly good in the eyes of the world, right? So how can we stop having a divided heart? How do we stop having these divided priorities? How do we focus on, on just one? Well, one thing that helps is to look at the cross of Jesus. If you want to know what the city of man is really committed to, take a look at the cross. How can you and I kiss up to a system that made its truest statement about God by crucifying him? We have nothing in common with that. If you always get along with a world dead set against the glory of God, what does that say about you? What does that say about me? Paul was glad to suffer the loss of all things in order to gain Christ. He considered his old life so much garbage compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. He said that in Philippians 3. That's the heartbeat of the city of God. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. Psalm 73. 
That passion is clear evidence of citizenship in the city of God. Abraham felt that way. He felt such a sense of possession in the promised kingdom that his life became a journey. He was a wanderer for most of his life, a sojourner. He was looking forward to a city whose designer and builder is God. And he desired a better uh, country, a heavenly one. That longing for something better in God, that's what it means to be a Christian, actually. So therefore, stop living like a resident of this world and grow in your ability to live like a pilgrim. Trusting God. Because everything that he said... Everything that he said was go- everything that he said would happen happened. And everything that he said is going to happen is going to happen. We can trust him in that. He's worthy of our faithfulness. He's worthy of our trust, our loyalty and, and obedience because of his faithfulness. So finally in that day be found as one of his. And that day needs to be this day. It needs to be today. Let's pray. Lord, uh, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your faithfulness. We thank you for your uh, great mercy, Lord. And Father, I pray for my brothers and sisters here that your peace would grant them a heart and a mind focused on you as you strengthen them and myself, Lord, as you strengthen us to navigate uh, the rest of today, the rest of this week, the rest of this year. Uh, in everything that we might be facing, Lord, and in everything that is yet to come. Um, we desire to stay focused on you, to, to, to bask in the glory of being one of yours, but to bring glory to you, Lord. So may he cause his face to shine upon you and lead you in ways of righteous living and thinking and doing. And I pray that he grants each one of us opportunity to share the good news about what he's done in our lives with those that are in need of hope. Lord, we praise you for these things. Praise you for being a holy God and a good God. And all God's people said, amen.